Amen. Well, please do turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You can use a real Bible. Real Bible and real coffee. What luxury is this? And if you don't have one in your hands, there's a stack at the back of the room. You can sneak a cup of coffee while you're there. And remember, you can slip off your mask and drink that if you need some air. If you're just uh, joining us today, I'm glad we've got you here with us. Uh, You come as we reach the home stretch of this great letter of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's building today on some pretty punchy things that he's had to say in this last big unit of the letter about the role of men and women, about uh, what church really is. Um, And so we won't go back over all of that today as we touch on it in the passage, but hopefully this will give us a little recap of where we were before the summer and tee us off nicely for uh, the next and final big unit of the book next week. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 40. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsider or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he will be convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God really is among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject in submission to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you, and that means all of you, men and women, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. 
If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Well, amen. When was the last time you realized that you had got God very wrong? What he's like, what pleases him, what he asks of us as his people. My hunch is that there'll be two kinds of people in this room. Some of us will feel like we're discovering new and wonderful things about him every week, even over these last few years. Our thinking about life and death and eternity and church has been exposed and put in the blender. As God, week by week, by his Holy Spirit, has been helping us understand and appreciate those ancient truths of his word in new ways. That will be some of us. Some of us, though, perhaps, won't remember the last time our understanding took a big hit. We learned a lot about God as new Christians when we first came to Jesus, and now we think we've got him figured out. If God is infinitely bigger than us, though, and if our hearts are as prone to wander as the Bible suggests, then I'd suggest that is a worrying place to sit. One of the surprising things about this passage is just how wrong we can be in our thinking about the Lord even as Christians who've known and loved Jesus' gospel for many years. And that ought to humble us. It ought to keep driving us back to God's word, asking him to teach us. Paul today is closing down the argument of this big section of the letter, which from at least halfway through chapter 11 has been about how we behave when we come together like this as a church what our central gathered worship meeting ought to look like. Notice how that language is repeated today. Verse 23, when the whole church comes together. 26, when you come together. Verse 35, in church, a word that just means gathering. But the way the Corinthians have been behaving towards one another when they worship as a church was very revealing about how they truly thought of God. Paul has a very clear message today about how he wants them to behave, but did you notice he also has a motive? The thing that drives this whole argument is the character of God. What do we really think he's like? And what do we want people to see of him? I'm very much in baby mode at the moment, as you'd imagine, and it is so striking what happens when you put a newborn baby in the midst of a group of people. What do you do when you're handed a baby? Some of us panic, some of us coo, but apart from that, immediately you go into gentle mode, don't you? If I was to hand Rob little Josie, and immediately he started screaming in her face, you'd know something was seriously wrong with his grasp of reality. It hasn't happened. <laughs> but it's incredible. Even Barnabas, my rambunctious, destructive five-year-old boy, even he begins to whisper and tiptoe around if you hand him the baby. Instinctively, you understand that if 
This is the kind of person in your midst you have to act in an appropriate way. Well, when Christians gather, it's not around a baby. It's around the risen Lord of glory, the everlasting God who dwells among us by his Spirit. So how should we instinctively behave if we've understood what he's like? Or to put it another way, what does a Spirit-filled church look like? A lot of Christian folklore would have us think that God is a God of frenzied, dynamic, passionate activity. And so a spirit-filled church should look the same. Ecstatic, loud, exuberant, unpredictable, outside the box. Certainly that's what the Corinthians thought. Church was where the more spiritual Christians could exercise their gifts in a kind of joyful, competitive chaos, and the rest of us could be carried along. And to be honest, it's easy in churches like ours to sometimes wonder if they've got a point. Maybe we're missing something. For all that's good about our little church, perhaps the Holy Spirit isn't our strong point. But if we think like that, it's possibly because we've made just the same mistake about God's character as the Corinthians had. I would suggest that actually the spirit-filled church is one where week by week, men and women, boys and girls, come and sit in neat, tidy little rows and quietly, patiently, hungrily, they listen to someone talking about Jesus and they respond with repentance and faith. Sometimes the message sings and they respond with joy. Sometimes it stings and they respond with heart searching. Sometimes it stinks and they respond with patient, orderly politeness, bearing with the preacher. That's a spirit-filled church. Now, maybe already you don't like where we're going with this. You want to say, I'm imposing something cultural, and there's some truth in that. We could have a four-hour-long church service here where three preachers all speak, one in turn after the other. And actually, that might look a lot more familiar to Paul than our British hour and a quarter does. But verse 33 says, be very careful. The basic point here is not cultural. There's something far deeper behind it. In fact, it jars with our culture now. We today want everyone to have their say. We think everyone ought to be heard. This is about people from every tribe and nation and language bending their ways to God, reflecting his character. A God who is not a God of confusion, but of peace. A God who values the many, not just an elite spiritual few. That's been the big point of this whole section, hasn't it? Lay down your own status and preferences and rights for the sake of others. That's the way of love. And it's the point he hammers home here at the end. Verse 26, let all things in church be done for the building up of many. Verse 31, behave this way so that all can learn and be encouraged. Verse 40, all things should be done decently in a seemly way and done in order. I once heard that called the Presbyterian's life verse. 
We love our order, don't we, in church? But really, the point is not that. The point is that we should be keeping one loving eye on what others will think and understand by our behavior all the time. Maybe the thing that jars most with our culture is that the way to bless and encourage the many is not to give everyone their say. We don't like the idea of teachers very much now. We often find that is the sort of plague of church Bible studies. We assume everyone is meant to be a facilitator, not a leader. And so nothing ever gets taught. The message is never clear. Corinth was so like our own world. Everyone desperate to speak, to contribute, to be heard. But Paul says, not in church. It's not the place to be heard, first and foremost. It's the place to hear and to love and to serve each other. It's actually more loving to the many when fewer are clamoring to have their voice raised high. Brothers, verse 20, don't be childish. That's what children are like, isn't it? Each competing for the teacher's attention. And Corinth was a church full of Peter Pans, all refusing to grow up. But love is the opposite of childishness. Remember those beautiful words a chapter ago? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast like you lot are. When I was a child, yes, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, he said. But when I became a man, I gave up those childish ways. And that is love. Do you see then what he's saying here at the end of the unit? Brothers, it's time to grow up. Time to speak and think with love. Three things then that love teaches grown-ups as it turns our hearts out from ourselves and our own rights and our own preferences and towards the many. First, verses 20 to 25, love teaches grown-ups to think of others. And specifically, it teaches us to think about what we're communicating to them. What did church in Corinth say to the outsider, to the Christian who wasn't one of the spirituals? What did it say to the unbeliever who stumbled in on their assembly? If you remember back to the first part of this chapter, Paul's been comparing two very different kinds of spiritual exercise. There was the one the Corinthians prized, speaking in strange languages or tongues. And then there was the one Paul wanted to see more of, speaking God's word to people in a prophetic, life-changing way. And Paul showed them how, at its roots, tongues were a spiritual exercise centered on self. If nobody else understands what you're saying, you might be praying to God in your own heart, but no one else benefits. Whereas at its roots, prophecy was a spiritual exercise focused on others, a loving one. Tongues might look more spiritual, more spectacular, but it doesn't achieve the thing the Holy Spirit is truly all about, opening up hearts to Jesus and his gospel. And so here's the big shock to the Corinthians. You might think that a church where everyone speaks in tongues is a sign of God's blessing, a sign that God is at work. 
But in fact, it's precisely the opposite. When God confuses human speech in the Bible, it's a sign of his curse. Paul quotes in verse 21 from Isaiah chapter 28, and it's a deeply uncomfortable passage. In fact, you might want to turn it up now that we've got real Bibles. Isaiah chapter 28, page 588 in our visitors' Bibles. And if you cast your eye at verse 9, the first thing you'll notice is that the Israel of Isaiah's day had something right in common with the Corinthians. Verse 9, to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. You see, God's privileged people, his Old Testament church, were acting like babies. <laughs> refusing to listen to God. Once again, Paul's point is that the Corinthians are perilously close to Old Testament Israel, aren't they? Remember what Paul said back in chapter 3 of this letter? I fed you with milk, not with solid food, because you still haven't really grasped the basics of the cross. God spoke a plain message of repentance to his ancient people through prophets like Isaiah, and in their childishness, they refuse to listen. And so now, he says, he'll speak to them in judgment. Foreigners will overrun their land. And a God who refuses to speak clearly is a God speaking in judgment, not blessing. This is a kind of judicial deafness. Well, back to 1 Corinthians and prepare for the sting. God spoke to his own rebellious people, the nation of Israel, in foreign tongues as the Assyrians invaded. But what does God call those people of his in verse 22? Unbelievers. That was the nation of Israel. Unbelievers who thought they were worshipping. Strange tongues is how God talks to unbelievers. It's a sign to them a sign of judgment. You might think, you Corinthians, that it makes you look spiritual and mature to behave like this. No doubt Israel thought of themselves the same way. And even when the Assyrians were at their gates, they refused to change. So now what does it say to the outsider to come into a church where everything is incoherent and competitive and a kind of super spiritual show have you even thought of them, what they might think? They will come into God's church and witness a people who make no sense at all. A people whose behavior does not say God is here to bless. What it really says is God is here to judge. Is that the sign that we ought to be presenting to the world in this great gospel age? A negative sign we should be the people God dwells with in love and power, not the people he hides his truth from in mystery and show. Tongues in the book of Acts where God gave them as a positive thing, they were communicative. It was the opposite of this. God in his love was reversing the curse of Babel, summoning the world to his son. The Corinthian attempt to look spiritual was building Babel back. 
and the world would be well within their rights to look at them, verse 23, and say they're barking mad. What are we communicating about the God in our midst? How does he relate to us? When God is at work, verse 24, he speaks plainly, and even the most stubborn heart knows what he said. That is a supernatural thing, isn't it? I wonder if you remember the first time you witnessed that miracle. Wow, I, I don't understand all of that. It is very different to anything I've ever heard out there. But I really think God just spoke. And if it's true, I have to listen. A church full of prophecy where God's word is applied, that will be a church where the outsider is shown the secrets of his heart and called to account and falls on his face because he recognizes that the living, holy God is here in the midst of his people. Now, church isn't for the seekers. He isn't saying that we should change everything we do to make it all plain vanilla. Church is for feeding the sheep first, but those sheep, those of us who are here, should be stretching ourselves, shouldn't we, to grow up, to grow into maturity, setting an example of hungering to hear God and listen even when it's hard work, when it's uncomfortable, not just coming for the showy stuff, the childish stuff that thrilled us when we were teenagers. Prophecy is a sign for believers. Church is for us. But when in God's grace an outsider hears that, he has a chance to respond in faith and love, just like all of us. And that is an amazing thing. And Paul always has one loving eye on that opportunity. He always has an eye on the mission because that is what love does. It's the church full of God's word that wins the world. Love teaches grown-ups to think of others. Well, secondly, verses 26 to 35, love sometimes teaches grown-ups to hold our tongues. <laughs> what did church look like in Corinth? Well, who's been to one of those children's parties where the little plastic kazoos get handed out in the party bag? You can tell them until you're blue in the face not to play with it till they're home. But once a group of little kids have those in their hands, it's game over, isn't it? Total chaos. Verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. I don't know about you, but I used to read that verse the way people often read this letter before they've actually met the Corinthians. I read that as a list of the kind of things we ought to do in church, a blueprint for an order of service. But that's not it at all, is it? He's describing what happens in their church. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Corinth was a church where every single one of them wanted to blow their own kazoo, wanted to be heard. And before we get too proud and say that because we don't speak in tongues and that kind of stuff, we must be doing way better, well, let's remember we can all be just as desperate for our own voice to be heard. We just want to be heard doing modern evangelical kinds of things, publicizing our ministry, special notices about our pet mission, our pet thing. 
pulling off the kids' talk with all the bells and whistles, dropping the killer comments in the Bible study. Now, they're good things. That list there in verse 26, those are good things. But the point isn't to tell them what they should be doing. They're doing all of it. The point here is how they're doing it and why. Let all things be done for building others up. If Corinth was a church where fewer people were clamoring to speak and show off their gifts, then actually far more people would be built up in Jesus. Sometimes love means we have to hold our tongue. And so Paul zooms in on three key activities that have been sticking points in this section, tongues, prophecies, and the questions it seems like a few of the women in particular want answered in church. And each time it's the same basic message. Church isn't about me, it's about us. It's for the many, not the few. And that means order and decency. It's the same basic pattern every time, from incomprehensible to intelligent speech, from many to few speakers, from chaotic to ordered relationships. Paul doesn't forbid tongues, notice that in verse 39 at the end. He doesn't forbid it, but he controls it. That's what this is about. Only two, or at most three people, only one at a time, and it must be for the sake of everyone. There has to be an interpreter. Otherwise, verse 28, hold your tongue. Keep it between you and God. Prophecy, he's much more positive about. Remember, this is a frontier church. The New Testament hasn't been finished. God's people relied on prophecy, at least with a little p. But it's the same basic message, even though it's the thing Paul wants to hear in verse 29. Two or three speakers. Listen carefully. Not every message gets equal weight. One at a time. Don't shout over each other. And if another person pipes up, verse 30, well, hold your tongue. Because that way, 31, everyone can learn and be encouraged. Love is about them, not you. Notice whatever he means there by prophecy. It's not some off-your-face, out-of-body experience. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. They're in submission, literally. They're in control of their own minds, perfectly able to hold their tongue and wait their turn. It might be that those prophets they submit to are the others whose job is to weigh what's being said. But there's nothing here adding to or contradicting what God's already revealed clearly in his word. It's all controlled. And by that self-control, verse 33, we get to show what God is truly like. A God of order and gentleness and peace. Order in church doesn't constrain God's spirit. Order is what God's spirit always brings right from the very first page of the Bible, in fact, where the Spirit hovers over the chaotic waters and he puts everything in its proper place. It's the same story. Whenever God truly moves among his people, we're able to hold back our own competitive Corinthian show and put each other first. 
messy church is not a good thing, is it? Next time you see a poster for it, you might want to pull out your Sharpie. Church is where messy people come together with our messy, disordered lives, and we don't have to pretend when we do come together that we're something we're not, but as we gather together around a God of grace and peace, slowly but surely we find those messy lives being ordered, put back together by his Spirit. My paternity leave project involved discovering a new ministry, the ministry of the cable tie. Have you ever noticed how beautiful a good cable tie can be? I was building that little black box over there to make our sound system easier in here. And there's probably about 2,000 pounds worth of AV kit in that little box and 1,000 quids worth of cable ties. I mean, I went to town. If it moves or it wiggles, it got tied down. I was so determined that Martin would be proud of me when he saw it. And the point of all that restriction was to free us so that we don't have to untangle the same knot of wires every Sunday. Order isn't constraint. It lets the church function as a body for everyone. It should be a beautiful thing to look at. My cable ties are beautiful. Don't tell me otherwise. (laughs) Now, I guess if we were to come up with a list of attributes that each of us picked to describe God, there'd be some of the familiar favorites up at the top. A lot of us would probably choose grace, justice, love, holiness, power. How many of us would think first to describe him as a God of peace? Of course, you can't actually rank God's attributes. God is all that he is, all the way through, and all of it is beautiful. You see the beauty of this so clearly in parts of the world that don't enjoy the harmony that we have. It's incredibly striking in rural India. Often that culture is hugely competitive. It can be dog-eat-dog. And as a visitor, sometimes the chaos and the mess is utterly overwhelming. But many times I remember stepping inside a Christian home or a little church in a village outside Ranchi and being immediately struck by the difference. Little things, the yard immaculately swept. Neat rows of vegetables with food saved up, enough to share with neighbors. Everything God is, is beautiful. And it's beautiful when it's displayed in his people, orderliness, gentleness, peace. We cannot represent the beauty of the true God to this world if we are all squabbling and chaotic and clamoring to be heard, because that is not who he is. And it's the same thing going on in the last two verses of this bit, dealing with women. There is a much bigger story at play that we can miss because the words are so countercultural. But if you remember the big argument of this section, he said that everyone in this body has a part to play in painting a picture of God's gracious work in the world. Church is about displaying Him. And so we shouldn't conduct ourselves in public, in church in a way that undermines how he's chosen to reveal his gospel through humanity, through men and women. Back at the start of chapter 11, Paul 
taught us how God has ordered human relationships. Adam was made with a specific task. He was to be the glory of God in the world, revealing God as he led and protected in a godlike way. And then woman was made as mankind's crowning glory. If Adam, mankind, is God's most beautiful work, then Eve is what makes him complete and most glorious, the one he's most to cherish as he leads. Now, what does all that have to do with women being quiet in churches? Well, it's probably right that he says this here for a specific reason. It follows right on from the talk of weighing prophecy, although that's not all it applies to. But we had hints earlier on that at times, at least some of the women in Corinth were behaving in ways that scandalized outsiders. And maybe that was particularly seen when it came to debating what was said up front in church. Whose job is it to weigh a prophecy? Well, it's not clear, is it? The others could mean other prophets or just other people, but certainly that's an authoritative role. Keeping lies out of the garden, that was an Adamic job. It was the job man failed at. Whereas woman represents the glory and beauty of that garden that man was meant to protect. Paul wants everyone to learn, men and women, and there are times in church life in other contexts, maybe like our prayer meetings or small groups, where the implication back in chapter 11 was that he expects women to be praying and sharing and speaking and contributing. But always, he said, he wants us to do that in appropriate ways, not sidestepping those relationships that we've been put in and the gospel that they're meant to display. And especially that is true in our central public act of gathered worship. A woman taking on a male preacher, a prophet, for his slightly dodgy application <laughs> would have looked anything but seemly and harmonious and beautiful. And probably because it's what they needed to hear, he directs that message in Corinth to some of the women. But it applies to all of us, doesn't it? You don't get away with shouting down a preacher you don't like just because you're a bloke. If you're an elder, though, and you're tasked with guarding and protecting the church, well, there might be times when decency actually calls for it. I wonder if you notice how Paul's message to the women was actually exactly the same as what he said to the so-called spirituals, the men who speak in tongues or who prophesy. Did you spot that? It's the same basic message all the way through. To the women, verse 34, he says that the way they worship ought to be constrained by the law. But that is just what he said to everyone in verse 21. In the law, it is written. He says to the women in verse 34, they're constrained by love. They should keep silent for the sake of others. Just as he said to everyone else in verse 28 and verse 30, keep silent. Keep silent. Sometimes love demands it. And he says the women, verse 34, should be in submission. Just as even the prophets should be, verse 32. It's the same word. 
All of us in church are here for the benefit of others, here to reveal a God whose ways are ordered and beautiful and harmonious. And if that is the God in our midst, well, surely it will shape how we behave. Love teaches grown-ups to hold our tongues. And then finally, briefly, 36 to 40. Love teaches grown-ups how much we owe. It is such a pointed warning, isn't it, here at the end? But the Corinthians needed reminding that they are not the one true church. They have all their marks of in and out, of spiritual and unspiritual. Can you speak in tongues? Well, then you're one of us. You're a spiritual. But Paul says it is not them who gets to make those calls. The word of God didn't come from them. They aren't set apart from anyone else. It came to them by Paul the apostle, by command of Christ. They owe it all to Paul, and they owe it all to Jesus. And if they were half as mature as they thought they were, they'd realize that. Anyone who's truly a spiritual would recognize God's truth from the mouth of his apostle. Even when that word puts us in our place and we don't much like it, that's the real mark of a spiritual. They get on board with Jesus' call to die to self and put the many ahead of a special few. To let God's spirit-empowered word point everyone to Jesus altogether and let everything else fall into the background. If they won't recognize Paul's authority to set that priority, well, it places them outside the bounds of authentic Christianity. I don't recognize you. Isn't that a solemn warning? It is so crucial that we're reminded from time to time that we don't get to stand on our own. Tradition matters. What other churches do, those churches of the saints around the world and down the years, that has authority for us. The apostolic witness, the Bible matters. We don't get to determine who is important or how things are ordered or what church looks like. And if we don't like that, we need to remember how much we owe we can be so much more like the Corinthians than it is comfortable to admit. We love to think we're exceptional. We're the generation that gets to throw out all tradition and do church our way as if it was only us the word of God has truly reached. It is so easy to slip into thinking of ourselves as broadcasters and not receivers of truth. We're here to tell other Christians how to do things. I'm here to set up the chairs and manage the rotors so that others can learn. It's the non-Christians who need to hear, not me. The ones with my sorts of gifts, we're too valuable for that. But Paul says, not so fast. You are receivers, first and foremost, of my gospel. All of you. You made such a mess of things that God sent his son to die in your place. And he broke kicking and screaming into your messy, rebellious heart and won it to himself. 
And bit by bit, he is subduing the chaos and putting it back together. And if that is the God of patience, gentle peace that we gather around Sunday by Sunday, then surely everything we do should tell the same story. Well, let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you that by your Son, you have made peace in our rebellious hearts, that through the blood of your cross, your anger with us who belong to Jesus is gone forever. Thank you that we have received that truth on the same basis as every forgiven sinner who ever lived. Your sheer kindness and grace. And so would we be a people who live and embody your peace towards each other and before a needy world would true, orderly, patient love be found among us that puts the other first and lifts up Jesus Christ and not ourselves. For we ask it in his name. Amen.